Welcome to Country Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Ken Burns' country music documentary hosted by Nate Wilcox and James Porter. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Nate and James discuss Episode 7, Are You Sure Hank Done It This Way?, which covers the triumph of outlaw country practitioners Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings outside the Nashville system, the massive crossover success of Dolly Parton, Emmylou Harris's knack for bringing traditional country to the top of the charts from Los Angeles, and more. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Let it roll. Your host, Nate Wilcox. I should have said country roll because we're doing the country roll show again. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox. And we've got James Porter. And we are about Hey everybody. To- hey, hey. And we are about to talk about the penultimate episode of Ken Burns Country Music. Are you sure Hank done it this way? James, big picture thought yeah. on this episode, which takes us from the early 70s to the early 80s. Yes. Uh, my thoughts, I think it's kind of interesting, you know, um, are you sure Hank done it this way? If I remember correctly, there was like a montage of like, you know, country artists from the past, you know, and I think a lot of people kind of missed the message of that song. I don't think, I don't think Waylon Jennings was protesting Hank Williams and all, you know, when he sang that song. I think it was more a case of like, you know, he kind of saw how country was getting like really pop and middle of the road. You know, and trying to chase, the, you know, and trying to chase, you know, uh, top forty success by any means possible, you know, without any kind of like, you know, quirkiness. And I think that's what he's trying to say when he when he wondered aloud, uh, would Hank do it? Would Hank done? Would Hank have done it that way? You know? Yeah, absolutely. I think he's he's feeling boxed in and constrained by the Nashville studio system, and pointing out this ain't the way Hank done it. I think is is, is simple enough, but. My main thoughts about this is I started this one, uh, the rewatch I did for this episode, I started this one like totally, my tank was full of Marty Stewart and Rosé Cash. <laughs> and <laughs> and when the episode opens well, with... Well, what, well, well better, them than, better them than Bono and Dave Grohl, but you know. Well, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't even mention those. Here. Those hateful names, but yes, yes. <laughs> you can bleed yeah, me out later. <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid Bono and Grohl are going to show up in my living room now. But um, but you know, it seemed like this non sequitur because they start with this anecdote about how Marty Stewart's 13 and he gets a pick from Bill Monroe and he goes down to Nashville to audition for Lester Flat. But at the end, they tie it all back together, um, with Marty Stewart being on stage when. Um, Willie Nelson plays his 60th birthday party and does Poncho and Lefty and et cetera, et cetera. So I, I kind of feel like Ken Burns redeemed himself to some extent for for the over reliance on Marty Stewart and Roseanne Cash. And not that I hate them or anything; I think they're great. I recognize their status in Nashville and their and they've been pretty good commentators throughout the series. Right. Um, it's just that this perspective, you know, they were not that major. Marty Stewart's one of these guys who never quite made it as a frontman in his own right. But I think this episode does. Make I don't a know about that. I doubt it. I heard him quite a bit. Well, in the late eighties, early nineties, you know, and I mean, he yeah. did have a greatest hit album, which is warranted. You know, what I mean, he, yeah, he got he got a push, but he's he's not Randy Travis or Dwight Yoakam or any of the the various contemporaries of his era. And Roseanne Cash is kind of the same way. I was surprised to see how many top five and number one. Actually, she had a pretty good run of number one hits for a couple of years. But yeah. that's neither here nor there. Let's summarize the the episode. We they focus, you know, as usual, they tell you up up front. The, the big stories they're going to tell. And then they sneak some other stories in there. And, and the four stories that they single out are, and they do each of these in pairs in this in this season, which I thought was interesting, which kind of tells you they're trying to cover a lot of ground. Because after the last two episodes, it covered basically eight years over four hours. Now they're covering it right. in two hours. So 
I can understand the time squeeze. But the first pair they've got is Amy Lou Harris and Dolly Parton. Quote, two women from nearly opposite backgrounds would lead the way. One would come into her own as a writer and singer of songs drawn from her impoverished childhood in the mountains of East Tennessee. The other from the folk clubs of the East Coast would become an unlikely convert to country music and with her angelic voice convert millions more. So, you know, so far so good. I, I don't think you can deny Dolly Parton was central to this era. Both the good, and the, I mean, both in the hardcore country aspect of it and in the pop crossover, definitely I mean, her and Willie Nelson were the two most successful pop crossovers of this period. And then Lou Harris is kind of a crossover in the, in the reverse direction. So thoughts on how they handled those two stories? Uh, I thought it was interesting. You know, I mean, it's like, uh, first of all, I don't think that, I mean, as successful as Dolly and Emmy Lou were, I don't think they were the only crossover um crossover success in, in, in the 70s. I mean, not only did you have like William Whalen, but you also had like the really pop guys that uh, hipsters don't like to really discuss, like Kenny Rogers, you know? Yeah. But uh, They it, ran through that whole you know, crew but, in about 30 seconds. They, they did Kenny, Alabama, the Oak Ridge Boys, et cetera. I mean, bam, 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 bam. They, they just checked him yeah. off the list, <laughs> which was fine with me, honestly, but, but go so ahead. What I think about is interesting about Emmylou Harris in particular is that for a traditionalist coming from like the folk world, she was surprisingly accepted. Because most, you know, most people coming from rock or uh, folk, you know, who all of a sudden switch over to country and they're doing it traditional, they're doing it a traditional way, you know, they're not really um, accepted 100%. I mean, look at Graham Parsons. I mean, he was writing perfectly good country songs, you know, when he was here. And he even got to play on the Grand Ole Opry with the Birds, where they were kind of accepted begrudgingly. You know, but he never was. I mean, you don't really, you know, it's like, I mean, we were talking earlier about how there, that there's a series on the Bear family label called um, Dim Lights, Thick Smoke and uh, Country Music. That's, that's, that's the name of it, right? It's Loud Loud Music, yeah. Loud Loud Music, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of discombobulated right now. But no anyway, worries. it's like, I, I think it's kind of amazing that, you know, they actually included a couple of uh, Flying Burrito Brothers songs on it. You know, which I thought was like a pretty progressive move, especially knowing that no country station in 1969 was playing the burritos. You yeah. know, yeah. and, and, no and there were other like, huh, huh? And barely any rock stations were touching them either. Well, and the they, FM rock stations, I'm sure, but not not top forty. Yeah. You know, and and there, there were was. others too, like you no, know, others too, like Michael Nesmith. You know, uh, who was also like you know cutting some pretty progressive takes on country music, and you had a a pop hit with a song those kind of countries called uh, called Joanne. However, though, any success these men had was like, I mean, it was known by one and all that they were rooted in country, but still their following comes from the comes from the rock field. You know, you expect Emily Harris to kind of like, you know, be like them, just kind of like make these traditional country records that only rock fans buy. But actually, no. I mean, it's like she kind of made it over to the country mainstream and nobody really questioned what she was doing. Nobody tried to make her another Tammy Wynette. You know, nobody looked at her as like, you know, some interloper from another world. I mean, everybody just kind of like, you know, say, hey, this, this, Emily's doing her thing. You know? Yeah, that, that's an excellent point. And, I, and I, I'll have to dive in deeper onto Emmylou Harris to have any real insight in that. But my guess is, you know, money talks and BS walks and she was delivering right from the get-go. As soon as she put that album out and her first singles were big time country hits. So, yeah, yeah, you know, and also she's coming around at the same time as the Eagles are taking Graham Parsons country rock vision and breaking it solid pop. So, right. I, you know, I think it was just the zeitgeist and that, you know, they weren't going to fight it. Plus Amy Lou was a stone professional, which, Graham Parsons was stoned, but he was anything. <laughs> you know, I, I did an episode yeah. with his biographer, David Meyer, recently. And, you know, the thing about Graham Parsons is other than in his high school bands, he never had a period where any of his bands became a steady live draw anywhere. I mean, there was, you know, the, the Burrito Brothers Altamont was probably their best show ever. Otherwise, they were shambolic at best. You know, and Emmy Lou that, Harris. You noticed that he, he get a Graham Parsons kind of flew through bands pretty quickly because 
the birds, the burritos, and and then and the international submarine band. Yeah, that was that was all that was all in space of the year, mind you, like sixty yeah. sixty nine. Yeah, and, that wasn't and, over a period of time. And none of his collaborators had a good thing to say about him afterwards, except for his talent. And you know, and Emmy Lou will tell you, and she loved the man. I don't know that they were romantically involved, but she clearly musically loved him very much. Yeah. And she she went on tour with him and basically came away with it. This is not what you do. Everything that Graham did is exactly what you don't do on a professional tour. <laughs> and so, yeah. yeah, you know, so anyway, but let's let's go ahead and hear a little bit of Emmy Lou. Um, I wanted I wanted, you know, they they played a couple of her tracks that, that you know, she came out very strategic by doing Lubin Brothers and other, you know, traditional country artist tracks. And one of the one of the numbers that she did pretty early on in her career, I think her second batch of singles, was Don Gibson's Sweet Dreams, which had been a huge hit for Fair and Young about ten years earlier. So let's hear Amy Lou Harris is saying Don Gibson's Sweet Dreams. Emmylou Harris's version of Sweet Dreams, which was Sweet at the Cashbox, went to number one, if I remember correctly. And yeah, she she's bringing this California energy and functioning out of the California Los Angeles music industry. She's not a creature of Nashville and never had to deal with the whole um, Nashville system, which Dolly Parton was a Prisoner is a strong word, but she was a creature of the Nashville system and was definitely under the thumb of Porter Wagner, which is a double-edged sword because he produced an incredible body of work on Dolly. Like the thing about Dolly Parton when I was growing up was you couldn't find any of her early albums. Everything in the record store was, you know, post '78, post crossover. Those albums she did it was all from the all, all from Here You Come Again era. Yeah, yeah, and I mean they had the great greatest hits from her early stuff, but it wasn't yeah, yeah. until the streaming era when you could suddenly get her whole your hands on her whole catalog relatively painlessly that you realize, wow, this is an incredible book of stone classic country work, both her solo albums and the duet album she did with Porter Wagner. I'm not saying every one of them is, you know. Um, redheaded stranger level but i'm saying it is solid every album is going to have a song or two that you never heard before that is just pure gold and 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 a few hoots and a holler you know and and i thought they did a pretty good job of telling the story of how dolly broke away with porter wagner by writing the song i will always love you which of course goes on to be uh, a big hit for her and then covered by whitney houston and becomes this you know total american pop classic so i felt like they did a good job with both Emmy Lou and Dolly. Um, and let's get to the the next coupling. Did they go to they see? Yeah. And so then the next coupling is obviously the outlaws. They they talk about Waylon right. Jennings and Willie Nelson. And Willie they've been covering. They covered him in the last episode, his his tenure as a very successful songwriter in Nashville who wasn't making it as a singer. But Waylon, they didn't cover at all until this episode. And they went and told his backstory, how he, you know, played bass for Buddy Holly on Buddy Holly's final tour, uh, you know, lost a coin toss to give up his seat to the Big Bopper, yeah. becomes becomes a local star in Arizona, gets signed, goes to Nashville, struggles with Chet Atkins. I mean, and he had hits, you know, even his version of MacArthur Park was a country hit, but he's Waylon Jennings, and he wasn't succeeding at a level that fitted his talent, you know. He was a restless soul, basically, Ab and he was always looking for that next thing. Yeah, absolutely. And and he had essentially perfected his act by the early 60s, but Chet Atkins wouldn't let him project that act on record. And so, you know, and they don't mention the manager that Willie Nelson and, and Waylon Jennings had in common, and I'm blanking on the man's name, but, he, you know, they got— I think it was Neil Rushing. Yes, it is. Neil Rushing. Exactly. And I Thank think you. Neil kind of had the idea of like breaking Willie and Waylon in areas other than country because he figured that they had something to offer the, the general rock audience. 
Yes, yes. And, and you know, Willie had already been on Atlantic Records and failed twice with, with brilliant albums, Shotgun Willie and Phases and Stages, uh, when Jerry Wexler was, you know, trying a Atlantic country imprint. But um, Neil right. was able to cut an incredible deal with RCA for Waylon. I mean, the dude was just a stone, badass, classic New York Jewish businessman who just cut through Nashville, you know, like a razor blade and got Wayland the deal he needed and, you know, and then did the same thing for Willie, got him the same exact deal and they both succeed. And Willie, of course, had to move back to Texas and built up such a groundswell here in Austin uh, that kind of became an irresistible force. And then when he finally hits with, with Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain and the Redheaded Stranger album, which I didn't know this, but Billy Sherrill and others just thought was terrible, thought it sounded like a bad demo. And you know, yeah, I Willie, heard that story, yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, Willie had recorded it on the cheap, but very beautifully in a, in a studio in Dallas. And because of his deal, they had to release it. And Billy Sherrill and others were like, well, let's just pacify him and let this album out and it'll flop and then we'll get him back here and get him, you know, on the program again. And nope, it was a hit right out of the gate. And, you know, the rest is history. How did you feel about how they told the Willie and Waylon stories? Uh, I think they pretty much like, you know, laid it out pretty well, you know, considering, you know, uh, considering uh, what they'd gone through, you know. I mean, what I think is interesting about Willie and Waylon is uh, there's a song by the Bottle Rockets where they're talking about how they love being outlaw country guys but they'd rather have carry underwear they'd rather have carry underwood's bank account <laughs> if you get my drift you know and i'm listening and i'm thinking i think mean, it's kind of funny considering that you know even after willie and Waylon, you know broke away from the nashville system they were still having hits Massive that's hits. the funny part i mean it's like they weren't like i mean you'd expect considering how drastically different they were from everybody else who was in the country top 40 you kind of expect them to like you know just sort of like like you know kind of like you know like Lyle Lovett or Dwight Yoakam just kind of have just kind of like drift away to another audience altogether who understands them you know but the more different they were from the country mainstream the more the country world loved them you know yeah the country I mean, audience at least and, and yeah, yeah, the audience. I mean, cause, cause, yeah. Cause, cause the, the, the heads of the record label didn't really understand. But, I mean, if you think about it, too, I mean, it's like, I mean, they were really projected to, like, you know, take over the the rock world, you know, and they did to an extent. But it's I mean, funny, yeah, you know, that LP, big. They, they were. But, you know, that LP they came out with uh, early on called One at the Outlaws. Mm-hmm. One of the first platinum album with. Yep. First platinum country, country album. Country. Yeah, yeah. For, for those who are listening, that was a various artist compilation featuring Willie Whalen, Jesse Coulter, who's Whalen's wife, and uh, Tom Paul Glazer. You know, and everybody thought it was kind of interesting that out of that group of four, uh, Jesse was like the first person to have a crossover pop hit. I'm not Lisa. Yeah. I'm not Lisa. I'm not Lisa. That's right. Yeah. You know, and it took a. I mean, I mean, I mean, Willie would have his country hits later. You know, and I think. I oh, think he already had blue, blue eyes crying in the rain had already hit, um, and and then the, and they had uh, the cowboy song that's on the album, a good hearted woman, in love with the good yeah time, yeah yeah was was a hit for them. I think I, I think Waylon by himself had looking uh, looking back Texas in '77. I think that was why it for him the country charts, uh, the country singles charts, but album wise, I mean he was Waylon and Willie. They were like really really rolling during the 70s. They were like, uh, the, the, I mean, the, the, the rock audience, the rock audience just tuned into them, you know, uh, but just the same. It's like, I mean, oddly enough, the country, maybe maybe it was a new breed of country audience who was ready for them at that It point, was the boomers. You know? it, was, it was the young boomers, I think, that were coming up. And, and it was also the Southern rock fans. There's, there's a big overlap between people who love the Allman Brothers, Marshall Tucker, Charlie Daniels, ZZ Top, yeah. Leonard Skinner, and who love Willie and Waylon. And what Willie discovered in Austin was that here was a place and a time when rednecks and hippies all of a sudden were getting along, which definitely had not been the case in Austin just a few years earlier when the godforsaken 13 floor elevators, my favorite band ever, right. were just literally crushed by the police, even though they're drawing massive, you know, crowds. But 
and and the the, the bikers and and rednecks were not into that kind of stuff at all. So it was a it you know it wasn't racial reconciliation, but it was a, a, a class con- reconciliation. I mean, it was literally the hard hats that had beat up the hippies at the Chicago convention. The Texas version of those people suddenly were getting high. You know, and and making love, not war, with the hippies at Willie's picnic, and it was a massive thing. And it was right around the time that those old school country guys started to grow their hair long too. Yeah, yeah, a bunch of them. It wasn't just Earl Scruggs anymore. It was, you know, it was all of them. And yeah. Willie, was, Willie was definitely leading the way. And also, when they went down to that picnic and saw how many people that were there, I mean, again, you know, money talks uh, and BS walks. Yeah. But let's go ahead and hear a little bit of Waylon Jennings. This is a favorite one of mine. I, I blasted this all the way across Tennessee one time. I just put it on loop and played this all the way through Tennessee. And this is Waylon Jennings. Bob Wills is still the king. Well, you tip your hat to the ladies and the rose of San Antonio. I grew up on music that we call Western Swing. It don't matter who's in Austin. Bob Wills is still the king Lord, I can still remember the way that And that was Waylon Jennings doing yet another uh, song of purpose Bob Wills is still the king which you know, definitely was sort of one of those self-reflexive celebrations of the Austin scene and a declaration of independence of, um, you know, this Texas scene, this outlaw scene. Even though Waylon never left Nashville, uh, he recorded there at, at Hillbilly Central, Tom Paul Glazer's studio throughout this yeah. whole run. But yeah, no, he started. And I'm, and I, think I'm, I think I might want to add, too, that the Johnny Paycheck and Hank Jr. caught on to this. And they oh. kind of went outlaw like around 75 or so. Yeah, uh, yeah, a little later and in their own way, and and yeah, and I'm looking at Waylon's singles discography, and he's definitely goes on a run starting in 1974 with this time number one. I'm a rambling man, number one, and uh, and is reeling them off um, all through that period. And the one thing that I was a little frustrated with, though, they they show a picture of Jerry Jeff Walker, but they don't mention it by name, and they mention there's a lot of that during there's a lot of that during the course of the series, though. They'll show yeah. like a picture which like represents what the movement was about. But they don't really dig deep into it. Yeah, like Roy Orbison sound episode. You know, they show a picture but don't talk yeah. about him. And they also don't mention Doug Som at all, which for a minute, for a hot minute there, he and Willie were the two leaders of the Austin's underground scene. Doug coming from the rock side from the uh, Sir Douglas Quintet that had some hits in the 60s, and they were both And God with, bless Jerry West, he tried to break the both of them, like, around the same time, but yeah. didn't really take. Yeah, yeah. and then, and, and, and you know, both of their albums on Atlantic flopped, and, and Doug never really recovered. And then they talk about the Texas Tornadoes when they're talking about Freddie Fender, and they mention Flacco Jimenez, but they don't mention Doug and Augie Myers from the Sir Douglas Quintet. So I just wanted to get that in there as a little bit of uh, blatant localism as an Austinite, but then the third um, pair that they talk about, and they talked about these two in the last episode, but they have to talk about these two, uh, George Jones and Tammy Wynette, and that they describe as a married couple, each possessing a remarkable voice who would create some of country music's most enduring records while seemingly living out their songs' tragic lyrics. And yeah, the story continues. In this episode, they get last episode, they got married. This episode, they get divorced but come back together as a duet, continue to have hits. And then they build it up to um, He Stopped Loving Her Today, which has taken on this whole mythos as the greatest country song of all time. And, I mean, I've cried many a tear to that song. I'm not, I'm not about to diss that song, but I think its reputation has taken on a weight and a grandeur that really is to me, exclusively down to George's performance of it and Billy Sherrill's production of it. it. And nothing against the songwriters. It's a great country song, but it's not it's not the country song. I, I don't know. Thoughts? Uh, I kind of halfway agree with you. I mean, it's like, you can kind of tell if somebody of a lesser talent did this, you know, they're, and uh, then, you know, then we would have we saw right through uh, the sentiment. But what sells that song, and let's face let's face facts, it's just just as much about the performance as it is uh, the song itself, is how understated both men are. You know, it's like I mean, George Jones is always like 
the master of restraint. I mean, he could get to you, you know, and not have to raise his voice. Oh, but yeah. Billy Sherrill, as we, I think, as I think you just discussed before, he kind of took over Chet Atkins' mantle as the country politics schlockmeister supreme. However, he could dial it back when he wanted to. It's like there are strings swelling the background, but they don't come off as a cheap soap opera. It's like kind of what the song needs, you know. And I don't know if they knew. If they thought, if you know, when they finished the final take, I don't know if they thought, yes, we've recorded a classic, you know. But I can kind of see the see why the song's kind of like you know, um, take on added resonance over the years. Oh, for know? sure, and, and they, of course, Billy, they let Billy Sherrill tell the story of George Jones when he finally gets it down because he had been singing a Chris Christopherson melody, uh, "Help Me Make It Through the Night" instead of the melody of that song. And once you get that in your head, that's oh. really hard to get out. Um, <laughs> you know, but then he tells Billy Sherrill, "Okay, I recorded it. Nobody's going to buy this morbid son of a bitch." <laughs> and he was, <laughs> um, you know, the interesting thing to me that that I hadn't really thought about. Um, that they point out last time was that Billy Sherrill's an acolyte of Phil Spector. So he's coming at the, the country Paulton sound from a very different perspective and a generational perspective. He was also the first partner of Rick Hall of Muscle Shoals fame studios fame. So. Oh yeah. He, he had, he had an R&B background too. Cause I know he produced like the staple singers and a few other uh, rhythm blues artists for Epic, but I kind of want to walk back something and possibly ask you a question in, in, uh, in, uh, in the process. Well, you said acolyte of Phil Spector. Did he just study Phil's records or did he actually work for Phil? I believe he just studied his records. I, I've never okay. run into any reference of him being in uh, Studio A in, in L.A. or or even working in L.A. with the Wrecking Crew ever. Um, I could be wrong. I'd love to hear about it if I am, but I believe that he was just a fan and that he came out of Muscle Shoals, I think even before Rick Hall had Fame Studios per se. I think he was around for the Arthur Alexander hits. And then he took yeah. the original um, Muscle Shoals crew up to Nashville and and they became you know mainstays of the A-team, kind of the second generation of the A-team. And then Rick right. Hall brings up the Swampers as their replacement, which is you know, pretty damn good if you're going to have to replace your band, you know, get one band of legends and replace them with maybe an even better band of legends. So, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, well, um, not, only, not only that, but it's like, I mean, I mean, of course, with this new brand, because I've read that the thing was Norman, Norbert Putnam, you know, who was uh, one of those musicians who came up from Muscle Shoals in Nashville. I think somebody told him that, you know, they could make more money in Nashville, but they probably have to lay that R&B mess aside, you know, and, you know, but as it turns out, though, it's like, I mean, they did well playing straight country and even pop, but every now and then some of the old uh, R&B would come through on some of the production, Billy Sherrill's production, you yep. know, like Keep On Loving Me by uh, Johnny Paycheck and a few other songs that don't come to mind right now where they obviously like borrowed a few R&B licks and played them convincingly, you know? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, they, they they brought brought it all. You know, they had brought what they had to offer. And that was the beauty of the national studio system is if you were a stone enough pro to cut those three songs in three hours, you could you had a lot of latitude. It wasn't all written out arrangements like in, in New York at that time. It was it was still head arrangements and there was a lot of creative latitude for the session guys. And this yeah. episode they don't talk about the session guys. It's interesting. They covered that in the last previous two episodes. But let's let's get to our um, actually let's take a sponsor break and then when we come back we'll talk about the last pair of uh, big stars that are the, make up the fourth big story they tell in this episode. And so the next pair that they talk about and and this is an obvious linkage because they're both children of immense country superstars and I'm talking about Hank Williams Jr. and Roseanne Cash and they describe them as two children of music legends one the son of the hillbilly Shakespeare the other daughter the, the, the daughter of the man in black who would strike out on their own and prove as their fathers did that country music though grounded in tradition has always been moving forward so I, I think that that makes sense and I like them covering Roseanne Cash just because it continues that Carter Cash family narrative that carries us all right. the way through the series. Um, but like I said earlier, I, they overemphasize her a bit, um, but not as much as I thought at first, because going back and looking at her run, 
you know, they talk about the seven year ache, which is definitely an indisputably great song. I can remember that on the radio in the early eighties. And that was a period yeah. when treats on country radio were few and far between. And I listened to a oh lot my God, yeah. of country radio at that time. I mean, I can remember just getting so stoked when juice Newton would come on, you know, because it was, otherwise it was just a sea of John Conley and Ronnie Millsap, you know, and, and endless, endless Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton. And, right. You know, and it was, uh, for me, that's really, kind of why Rose, that's kind of why Roseanne Cash kind of stood out to me because she came up in a time when, you know, a lot of female country singers were either trying to be the next Linda Ronstadt, you know, yep. or they were, or they were following, um, uh, I can't call any names right now. I don't know why, but it's like, or they were just doing like the usual, like, you know, Nashville. They were trying to be a little new John. They were trying yeah, to thank be, you, thank you. yes. Or Crystal Gale, you know, Loretta Lynn's sister. Right. She it, had it, some it, good songs, but, but I mean, yeah, I really, I'm, I'm, I, I, I almost said David Sugar, but I don't know how, I, I don't know how, how that example would have played out. But you know what I mean. It's kind <laughs> of that main that, that mainstream pop trash. You know, like I say, Linda Ron sat on the one end. You know, for those who thought they were hip, you know, and for those who weren't, they were trying to be Olivia Newton John. But it's like you listen, like right or wrong, Roseanne's album from 1979. There's like a shred of uh, integrity there that kind of like predates the whole neo traditionalist movement by the five or six years. Yeah, I, I, I would know, agree with that. She's kind of a precursor of that uh, of that period, and and her hits lasted up until '87. So I can remember, you know, the late '80s, which to me was a golden age of, frankly, non consensual country radio listening because the garage I was working in. But I mean, you know, suddenly you're hearing George Strait, Randy Travis, et cetera, et cetera. We'll talk about that in the next episode. But you know, and Roseanne fit right in there with hits like t her cover of her dad's Tennessee Flat Top Box and others. And then they, and it kind of makes it kind of makes sense too that at the time I think she was either dating or married to Rodney Crowell, who was yep, walking along married, the same yeah. country line, and he, and he was producing her records. Which again, in this episode, because of his work with Emmylou Harris, is maybe not the leader of the Hot Band, but one of the key members of the Hot Band. Um, and they tell that story here. So these. I thought they did a really good job of, of weaving their threads together pretty tightly in this episode. And then they tell yeah. the story of, of Hank Williams Jr., who has made himself not quite Ted Nugent obnoxious politically, but pretty darn close. But You almost have to apologize for life in these days. You yeah. Know? Yeah, if you're on... I mean, on cause, 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 cause his, his discography, at least up, up through 1982, at least, like I'd say, like from... Well, I mean, not, not only when he was like a young, uh, not only his pre-outlaw years, but particularly between 75 and 81, you know, when he went, when he finally did go outlaw, the stuff he did in that period was actually quite eclectic, you know? I mean, yeah. You still kind of, you still kind of had like, you know, there was still a little bit of bluster coming through, you know, but he like experimented with like, you know, straight bluegrass, you know, straight blues, you know, he wasn't afraid of rock music. I mean, that man you know, was like, you know, a, that, that, that man really, that man was a pioneer in a lot of ways, which would not be believable to most people today. Yeah. He, he put a run of really, really solid albums together. I mean, you know, I think out of that crew, Waylon had the most great albums in a row. And then Willie had kind of front loaded his great albums before he got really massive. Once Willie got massive, he put out a lot of stuff, but other than Redheaded Stranger and Stardust, it was spotty, I would say. But Hank Jr., he had a really solid run. And I think they do a better job of telling about his struggles to get out of his dad's shadow and to get out from under his mother's thumb. And then, right. of course, the horrific fall down the mountain and the reconstruction of his face. I think something like nine facial surgeries in 18 months. And had cut the Hank Williams and Friends album in Muscle Shoals, which we keep bringing up. I had cut that, I believe, with the Swampers and had that in the can the whole time. He nearly died and, and recovered. And then it comes out. And then Waylon brings him on the road with him and really gets him over. I mean, just like a pro wrestler, a boxer, you know, just like when an old boxer loses to a young boxer. And not that Waylon was losing to him. Waylon was more than holding his own in that period. But he really gave Hank Jr. a ton of credibility. I mean, and somebody like David Allen Coe, who isn't mentioned at all, 
um, would have killed for that kind of acceptance. Right? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and might have. No pun intended, but, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, killed the wrong people. And, and you know, and I, I, I do, I think Dave Allen Coe put together a nice, a nice string of quality work himself. And is definitely one of the artists that, you know, could have been mentioned. Mo Bandy and Joe Stampley are other guys that, you know, were carrying the hardcore honky tonk flag uh, through that period and, and maybe could have got a mention. But I really. Gary Stewart, you know, I mean, yep. And not only that, but another thing too, I mean, despite the, also you're mentioning for the first time since this documentary has started, we're starting to talk about country singers in terms of albums. We've never done this before. You know, we've always talked about hit after hit after hit, you know, but now we're talking about like, you know, cause rock had kind of like, you know, made, you know, the, the rock world, it really made the album like, you know, uh, an art form, you know, not just like, you know, one hit single, a bunch of filler, you know, and then after, I gotta, I gotta, after I gotta, I gotta this is a pet peeve of mine at the moment, a new hobby horse, but I gotta say Frank Sinatra and of course the jazz greats like Miles Davis, Coltrane, they're the ones who really made the album an art form. Rock picked up on it, made it even bigger, and then country, yeah. are, we picked up on it later. So if you'll forgive me, the pedantic. Yeah, they did, but I guess, the, I guess it stands out more with rock, soul, and country because those are all singles music at one point. Because like, if you notice, like, you look at the Billboard album charts from like, say, pre-1968 and it's like dominated by like you know for lack of a better term Miller Road people the Frank Sinatra's the Dean Martin's the Sammy Davis Jr's you know like the occasional jazz record like Ramsey Lewis you know what I mean because I mean for the most part rock albums didn't sell you know and most rock artists didn't really take albums that seriously but after a certain point you know after people saw what the Beatles and the Stones are doing they figured hey let's just not just stick you know two hits plus a bunch of filler it's like create this to be played all the way through you know and I think country kind of like you know got I mean I mean country kind of got that message like right around the time of the outlawyer you know I mean yeah. even like the, you, you mentioned Mo Band it's like when he, those early LPs he did on the GRC label they were kind of put together really sloppy because there's like five songs on either side and they're like and they're probably done in like 20 minutes but they hold up surprisingly well considering you know yeah yeah, I'd compare it to Johnny Paycheck's stuff in the '60s, and I'm forgetting the small label he was on, but where, uh, Lil Darling. Yeah, Lil Darling, where they're clearly just tossing together an album. I mean, basically they're like, okay, we've got ten tracks, we've got an album. Was the extent of thinking they were doing, but the material was just so solid that that it yeah. ends up being a really value uh, laden package. Um, and it's almost time for our next cue, and I think I want to go with. Willie Nelson's Georgia on my mind and we'll talk about his Stardust album that this came off of when we come back Georgia Georgia The whole day through Just an old sweet song Keeps Georgia on my mind. And that was Willie Nelson doing Hoagie Carmichael's Georgia on my mind, which of course had been a huge hit for Ray Charles about 15 years before Willie, I want to say. Um, and it's part of Willie's Stardust album. And they don't mention Booker T. Jones of, of Booker T. and the MGs of Stack, Stack's music fame, but Booker T. and Willie were neighbors in LA in a condo and got to hanging out and playing the stuff that they most had in common, which was great American songbook stuff, Hoagie, Carmichael, Irving, Berlin, Cole Porter, right. Gershwins, et cetera. And the idea for this album just comes together, and Willie was in a spot where he could do whatever he wanted, had the contract to back it up, and you know, follows up Brent. That would make that would make Booker T one of the few black producers of a million selling white country artists. Yes, possibly the only one. I mean I'd have to yeah, look yeah. deeper, but yeah, no, a, a massive feat. And as much as Ken Burns has always emphasized, um, you know, race and, and racial equity throughout his whole career, I, I thought that was a big miss on his part, not to bring up Booker, but maybe they didn't have, you know, couldn't get him for an interview or didn't think to do it. But I think that's a little bit of a miss, but it's very telling that Willie Nelson, dude was just slippery as an eel. I mean, you know, and was just on fire at that point. Absolutely knew what his audience wanted. It's 
one of those things so many people have tried to do have got tried to go from rock or r&b to the great american songbook you know i'm thinking about aretha franklin and her columbia years early on or the supremes and their copacabana album i think they even did a rogers and hart a rogers and hammerstein album at one point rogers and hart that's right yeah, yeah. yeah. all, all you know, Motown acted. Yeah. yeah and and we're notorious, you know, those those have let me down time and time again. <laughs> as much as I oh, love yeah. and the Great American Songbook, that just that combination did not work. Now, when Ray Charles did that kind of material, he could pull it off, but he never really did an album of that kind of standards. His his big swerve was to do the country album. And yeah, Willie just absolutely nailed it. And it's really it's still a real aberration. I mean, it's probably the most popular collection of great american songbook tunes until like rod stewart starts doing them in the the late 90s and early 2000s i mean you know and and the biggest anybody had done them since frank sinatra i mean even barbara streisand wasn't really doing that kind of material in her heyday in the 60s and 70s she was doing like marvin hamlish and and stuff like that and and so she she was was basically doing like you know because she was like one of the few young performers who was actually doing like you know what was left of the songbook so she was doing doing singing songs by other young songwriters like that she wasn't really backtracking the holy carmichael and people like that i don't think no no she she was dead set against it in fact and and very rarely did that kind of stuff and so uh, yeah, so it's it's just a totally sui generis album and was a massive, massive hit. It was definitely my introduction to the Great American Songbook. So thank you, Willie, um, on that one. And then, well, the thing about Willie, too, doing those songs is that it, he doesn't sound like, you know, like, you know, like he's trying on a different pair of shoes. It sounds more like a side of him we've never seen before because he sounds very at home with the stuff. You know, like he was like singing it from birth. You know, and also to his, also, it's also worth noticing it's also worth mentioning that uh miles davis hated country music i mean in his autobiography and interviews he'd always like you know get down on because he recorded for he recorded for columbia records himself you know and of course i mean he always bitched that columbia was like you know they didn't promote his records enough they were always they was always selling those as he put it those sad ass country records but they just <laughs> he loved he loved he loved willie nelson he loved him from uh, Willie Nelson. He even named the song Willie Nelson. I, I didn't know that. That's 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 a big compliment, you know. Because well, you yeah. know, Miles heard the jazz. Miles heard the jazz in his phrasing and his guitar. So that's playing. kind of where that came from. Yeah, 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 for sure. But yeah, otherwise, Miles Davis is right up there with Buddy Rich as far as being a very vocal hater of country music, you know. Which is interesting because Charlie Parker was famously a fan of country music. Um, and right. Yeah, there's anecdotes about him and that they told in the previous episode. So, so yeah, I mean, Willie's just the kind of guy that lots of people love Willie Nelson that didn't even really know what country music was and not just America, but worldwide, you know? And so, yeah. You know, and, and I think that gets to kind of the dichotomy of this era is that you have artists like Willie and Waylon who are crossing over while being more true to the hardcore honky tonk spirit than Nashville had allowed anybody to be in a long time. I mean, you had people like Mo Bandy and, and Johnny Paycheck in his early days that were kind of underground that were doing that stuff, but nobody that big right. was on that hardcore. And then you've got Amy Lou Harris, who's crossing over kind of in the other direction, but being accepted by Nashville. It's funny because, you know, Waylon is still frequently regularly dissed by the country music establishment i mean if you look into hall of fame and awards and cma presentations they they're still holding grudges against Waylon willie they uh, it seems like they just gave up and just and just you know surrendered everybody loves willie and you know but then you've got dolly parton who makes this clear break with Nashville. She goes to LA, gets a new management team. She does it basically a disco album, which is a pretty solid album. Yeah. And then she, you know, she she breaks into Hollywood and does nine to five, which is a massive hit movie, which was a huge cultural milestone. And she has this massive pop hit with nine to five. It also went to the top of the country charts, but it was a pop song. And you know, that right. showed her showed her being feeded at, at Studio 54. So she just by being Dolly was able to cross over and still maintain the loyalty and love of her country audience in a way that 
like Kenny Rogers in the same period. You know, Kenny Rogers is a guy who comes out of the kind of the folk scene and he's in um, now like the first edition has a big psychedelic hit in 67 and and then does a version of Mel Tillis's Ruby Don't Take Your Love to Town, which is kind of his entree into country. But then by 75 or 76, when when the the time, you know, Lucille is a huge hit and yeah. uh, and the gambler, of course, Kenny Rogers becomes this massive cultural institution right around this time. And he's just tucked away. They just they just mention him twice that they talk about duets and they get Conway Twitty in there because they talk about him and Loretta Lynn, which I'm glad right. they gave Conway that shine. And I think they talked about him uh, in the Rockabilly episode earlier. But, you know, I'm they, trying they, to remember they, they talk they talk about Glenn Campbell any. Did they go into detail about him in early they, earlier episodes? They mentioned him briefly in the last episode, but they did not. I don't think they did Glenn Campbell justice uh, in any way, shape, or form. Um, they didn't mention Jimmy Webb. I mean, the, re- the reason I mention is the, the reason I mention is because I kind of see uh, Katie Rogers kind of following in the same pop country footsteps as uh, Glenn Campbell, Bobby Goldsboro, and Mac Davis. You know, yep. and I think. And I think, I mean, they're probably like, I don't know, I guess if you're like a housewife, you know, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, you know, then Kenny Rogers and Bobby Goldsboro and them, they're right up the alley. You know, but if you're like some, I don't know, some retro-leaning country person, you know, who's looking back at all the greats, you're going to put Bobby Goldsboro and Mac Davis and, and I know it's Glenn Campbell starting to get respect now, but... Kenny Rogers to put those guys in the margins. And I think that might be, I'm not a fan of those guys myself, but I think that might be why they were sort of like, you know, uh, cast off the wayside for the series. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I, I, I definitely understand it but at the same time. And, and I think I'm going to go ahead and, and throw a curveball for our last musical pick. This is what I had. This is not what I had planned on doing. Mm. But I'm going to have to throw my favorite Kenny Rogers song in here. And that's Coward. Coward of the County, okay. <laughs> just absolutely one of the classic story songs of this era. This is Kenny Rogers, Coward of the County. But you could have heard a pin drop when Tommy stopped and locked the door. Twenty years of crawling was bottled up inside him. He wasn't holding nothing back, he let him have it all. Tommy left the bar room, not a Gatlin boy was standing. He said this one's for Becky. And that was Kenny Rogers, Coward of the County. Uh, a personal favorite of mine. Not something I'm gonna try to insist is aesthetically worthy, but uh just a song that I can remember listening to many, many times as a kid and, and following the story very closely. And just one of those cheap sentimental story songs <laughs> that does it set up and does it pull off just brilliantly? Um, and and of I course, think, if you notice, the, the 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 villains in the song are named Gatlin. And, <laughs> yes. And you, and you Larry think about Gatlin. Larry Gatlin, and you think about he's like one of like you know he, I think I think he was supposed to be another Mac Davis type too because he had the looks you know and he had like the feel he had the Miller old feel of the songs but he never I mean he was, I mean I mean he, he was a blockbuster as far as country music goes but he never really like you know made that uh, pop transition. Yeah, absolutely. But you know who they don't mention at all in this, um, even when they Ooh. run through the list, is Eddie Rabbit. They they don't mention him. Oh at all. yeah. And he was colossal in this period. I think he wrote Kentucky Rain for Elvis and then, you know, just had, yeah. had a big run. And they don't mention Juice Newton either. And, you know, uh, I've got a the urban cowboy era. Yeah. Yeah. The urban cowboy era, which, um, yeah, is totally in the window. I think they do mention urban cowboy. I think they talk about Mickey Gilly a little bit, but um, I don't know. I thought they I thought they handled that stuff reasonably well because. Like I have a certain fondness for certain Kenny Rogers songs, and I've come to theoretically respect Alabama and the Oak Ridge Boys because I've learned more about their backgrounds and where they were coming from. Same with Ronnie Millsap. When I learned that Ronnie Millsap was a a true blue Memphis R and B singer, um, yeah. you know, who was well respected in the scene and heard his first album, which is which is pretty solid uh, for that kind of stuff. 
But my well, I'll tell you about Ronnie Millsap. I've always liked the you know, old soul stuff. Me being an R and B collector, I mean, I've always liked soul stuff he did in the sixties. But I kind of ignored his countryside until I had like a double whammy one day. Uh, like in the mid mid two thousands, I think it was. I received like you know a copy of I got a promo copy of uh, of a Ronnie Millsap greatest hit CD that just come out. You know, and I, I mean, I mean, I listened to it because it was there and it was free. But I was like thinking, wow, this is some seriously great stuff. And then back to back with that, I saw him live on the same bill with George Strait. You know, and um, you know, now I like him all the way through because that's the thing about. I mean, I don't know what he brought to the table that the others didn't. But even though his songs like straight up country politics, you know, for some reason they have a lot more guts or something, you know, that others in that vein don't have, you know? Yeah, I'm going to have to re-examine him because I hated him so much as a kid that (laughs) it's been very difficult for me to go back and give him a fair listen. But um, let's just run through some of the other people that they mentioned. Um, Charlie Rich gets gets a a mention, and he's one of these guys that had been a, a immensely talented journeyman R&B soul rock and roll singer throughout the 60s yeah. and and then he turns uh, country pop um, and and has had some of the just massive crossover hits for a minute there it was between him and Kenny Rogers who was going to be the silver fox of crossover country but then yeah. and, and they show him setting the John Denver uh, CMA Artist of the Year Award on fire at the Country Music Awards, but that was pretty much Charlie Rich putting a gun in his career's mouth and pulling the trigger. I mean, he he was really never forgiven for that, and you know, show up drunk at the biggest. Well, event. if you think about it, you just mentioned that you know that he and he and Kenny Rogers kind of running neck and neck as far as being the soul fox of country. I think Charlie Rich is kind of fading just as Kenny Rogers really started to come on as a solo artist. Because now that I think about it, now you mentioned, I think his real heyday really was like, I'd say, Charlie Rich now. When he was like, you know, a million selling country artist, I'd say like maybe 73 to 76. Yeah. When he was like, you know, all over the television, he was like the big crossover hero of the moment. But you don't really hear him, hear too much of him after that. And by the middle of the 80s, he was basically a whatever happened to. Yeah. You know? Yeah, because when, when Kenny Rogers hit with Lucille, that was about the time Charlie was still around, but he wasn't as prominent as he was. Yeah, you know? yeah, I, I think that's very true. He he's somebody who had and he'd he'd started earlier than Kenny Rogers. Kenny Rogers starts in the late '60s. Charlie Rich has been had been scrabbling since the early '60s, maybe even the late '50s. I think he was involved with Sun, uh, Sun Records. He was on Sun. I guess we had yeah. his first hit with uh, the Weekend. Yeah. Yeah, and and so. He's kind of like Willie Nelson, except he didn't. He didn't. Willie just had the alchemy because you know he did all this greatest songwriting in the '60s and the early '70s, but then somehow managed to. It wasn't apparent to people that Willie had kind of faded as a creative force because he exploded so much as a persona and was able to do things like Stardust, which was just brilliant. But, you know, there's no original songs on that album. So um, and then there was a period there where every other every other album he did was duet. Yes. Yes. And and they and and that's I'm glad you brought that up because that's the, the thread that they tie the whole episode together with. Because they they they're telling the story of the guy Clark's um, and Towns Van Zance, who had this kind of underground Nashville songwriting scene going on in the '70s, kind of the heirs to the Roger Miller, Willie Nelson crowd of the '60s. And Shel Silverstein, mm-hmm. I think, overlapped in in both groups. But you know, Guy Clark ends up writing uh, some big hits, Desperados, Waiting for a Train for Jerry Jeff Walker. And then, of course, Towns Van Zant writes Poncho and Lefty, which I thought they did a great job of telling the story of how Amy Lou Harris covered that. Willie Nelson's daughter heard that, presented it to Willie. Willie and, and Merle Haggard famously do it. And Merle's woken up in the middle of the night and they let Merle tell that story. And, and they cut Poncho and Lefty and it becomes this massive number one hit. And uh, you know, finances Towns Van Zandt drinking himself to death, which he was probably going to do whether he was penniless or not anyway. But, uh, you know, but they I thought they did a good job of getting that almost Americana scene. It, it was sort of a proto Americana songwriting scene that's going on. And I, and you notice they had John Prine in some of the pictures, but don't don't mention him, which is kind of fitting because he. Here we go again. Yeah. yeah. 
had a had a more of a singer. He managed to succeed in the singer songwriter niche, I would say, not massively, not James Taylor big, but you know, real solid career on the pop side. But interesting to think of him uh, in Nashville in that scene at the time. And let's see the other things I want to mention before we wrap. They they talk about Johnny Rodriguez and Freddie Fender. I liked how they they gave Tom T. Hall some shine for discovering Johnny Rodriguez and uh, encouraged him to change his name. He'd been performing as Johnny Rogers and Tom T. Hall was like, no, son, you need to use your real name. And, um, and I think it, it just speaks to where we were at as a culture in the mid 70s. This is before the massive waves of immigration from Mexico in the 80s and into the 90s. And it's just interesting to, to go back and listen to Johnny Rodriguez or Freddie Fender, who were singing in Spanish for big chunks of their songs. I mean, they were they were waving their Spanish speaking flag loud and proud. And oh, yeah. country audiences just embraced both those guys. I, I can remember as a kid, Johnny Rodriguez for a minute there, and he had a good run. It looked like he was going to be the second coming to Charlie Pride, you know, and, and I think had some personal issues or whatever, never developed into that big of an artist. But he had as good a run as Roseanne Cash for sure. And, you know, yeah. Freddie Fender was very late in his career when he had that um, before the next teardrop falls and, and, a re-release of a new recording of Wasted Days and Wasted Nights, but you know, so he. Uh, and it's kind of interesting. Freddie Fender, Freddie Fender's almost accident too, because there was a guy who worked for ABC Records named Michael Oakes, you know, and he was given he was a he was a promo guy there, and he, of course he was also a record collector too, and he had like you know a few of the old 45s that Freddie Fender did like back when he was still a rock and roller. You know, he was happy to see that Freddie got signed to ABC. He was given specific instructions not to promote. Uh, before the next teardrop falls because, you know, the word was that, you know, he's ex-con, he's Mexican, you know, he's older and he's been around for a few decades. He'll never make it, you know, this is a write-off, so don't promote it. You know, but Michael Oakes, out of the goodness of his heart, he did. And according to Michael, that's how he got fired from that job, even though uh, hmm. he was given this old record for promoting it, you know. No, so no good deed goes unpunished. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yes. You know, in the meantime, here's <laughs> Freddie's like, you know, when he gave him a gold record, Fred was like, we couldn't do it without you, brother. So, you yep. know. <laughs> yep, yep. And and uh, Freddie, of course, uh, one of the Texas Tornadoes that we mentioned earlier. And I guess let's wrap it with a, a shout out to Hazel Smith, who's been a talking head throughout the series. And then this episode, they reveal her claim to fame, which is she was the office manager at Tom Paul Glazer Studio, Hillbilly Central. And she named the movement Outlaw Country. And she's just one of those ladies that's just so country. And uh, kind of, to me, epitomizes the virtues of of the country soul and her storytelling and all that. I mean, the, the great quote, you know, if anybody ever doubts you, just just tell them that the lady who coined that term, this is what she meant by it. And and uh, so <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad to see her getting her shine. And any final thoughts on the episode? Uh, it was a good, it was a good way of uh, wrapping things up. Although, let's face facts, a few people got lost and left in the in the lurch, as you kind of alluded to. And also, in light of recent events, I don't think they covered Tom T. Hall either. No, you they know? definitely they mentioned him in the previous episode in the context of kind of Chris Christopherson and Shel Silverstein, but yeah, he. Tom T. Hall, in his own right, had some massive, massive hits and was just one of those guys that was just, I mean, for my money, I think a better songwriter than Chris Christopherson. Just, you know, something like The Ballad of $40, um, just, you know, or Homecoming. Homecoming, one of my I know. Absolute, absolute favorite song. So, yeah, they definitely could have uh, uh, put a little bit more time on Tom T. Hall. But again, they're, this is an encyclopedic topic they're trying to cover in, in a relatively short period of time. So I can cut them a little psych, but I'm very glad that you mentioned uh, Tom T. Hall, who just passed away this week. So Right, right. So thank you, Tom T. And it was an honor to share the planet with him. Uh, as long as it did. And James Porter, it's been an honor to uh, talk country music with you for another hour and look forward to bringing you back next time when we'll wrap up the series. I'm looking forward to it. Hey. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. 
Country Roll will conclude next week when James and Nate discuss the final episode, Don't Get Above Your Raisin, which covers the rise of the neo-traditionalists like Randy Travis, Ricky Skaggs, and Dwight Yoakam in the 80s, the sound of the Bluebird Cafe, and the explosion of country superstars like Garth Brooks in the 1990s. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.